This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today marks the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. So let's begin with truth. For many Canadians, the discovery of the unmarked graves on the grounds of former residential schools was a huge shock, but also an incentive to learn more about what led to that horrible truth. When did it start? How did residential schools roll out across the country? And of course, what has been the impact to this day? I'm going to give the numbers out again. If you have questions, comments, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We have a panel of scholars and activists Dr. Veldon Coburn, Professor of Aboriginal Studies at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Don Martin-Hill, Associate Professor and a founder of the Indigenous Studies Program at McMaster University. And Dr. Pam Palmiter, a lawyer and professor and chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, let us begin with uh, Pam Palmiter, and what are your hopes for this day? Well, I'm hoping that Canadians are intentional about this day and use it as an opportunity not just to learn more and reflect on what happened in residential schools, but to actually take up the call to do something, to take action, because every Canadian benefits from the historic and ongoing dispossession and oppression of Indigenous peoples. Residential schools were a significant part of it, but the underlying policy behind residential schools has never ended. And that's why we have a foster care crisis, a crisis of Indigenous kids in youth corrections, uh, over-incarceration of Indigenous adults, like you name it. Everything is tied to that same policy, which was about separating and destroying our communities. Dr. Veldon Colburn, uh, what about you? What are your hopes? Uh, well, I've, I've, in, in recent times, I've lost hope that um, the government of this time, in, in our current moment, um, will this will resonate with them. But I'm more hopeful for, you know, people in our community, our neighbors, the people that you know marry into our families that we become families with and kin, that they take note of this. That it's something that shapes this particular generation, they raise another generation in the truth, rather than um, and, and those people that might have their, their hands close to the levers of power eventually, but it, I'm, I'm less hopeful that um, uh, current governments will, you know, wake up to the truth today, um, even especially because of disappointing news of the last day or so, but um, uh, yeah, I'm hopeful for the future, and, um, and for the people who are on the ground and not walking in the halls of power here in Ottawa, and in the um, provincial capitals as well. And Dr. Don Martin-Hill, what are your hopes? Um, my hopes, uh, first of all, is, is that the survivors that in our families and in our communities finally receive the, the support and recognition for the horrors that they're, they experienced or their parents or grandparents experienced and the impact that's had with Indigenous families. Um, and I'm hopeful that Canadians will uh, start to realize the history of their country, um, understanding a genocide did take place. There is a continued assault on Indigenous people, whether it's land back here at Six Nations, the uh, brutality towards our people trying to save water, uh, trying to save the environment. And, and that we're not these um, outliers. We're not. We're trying to help all Canadians understand, you know, some of the errors of their ways and thinking that they continue to um, brutalize Indigenous people who are simply trying to uh, claim lands that belong to them and and preserve the waters for future generations, and and, and go beyond just learning about 
one aspect, one incredibly horrible aspect, but understanding there was sterilization of Indigenous women in this country. There was a eugenics committee in 1928-1934 in Alberta, and it's continued to this very day. Um, Canadians need to really look at what is their government doing, why are they doing it, and how you vote matters. That's my hope. Um, Dr. Palmiter, uh let's try to get a sense of, of the history. When did residential schools start? How did they start? Well, I mean, there's no specific set date. And in fact, you know, the the if you think about the schools that were started in the 1800s, there were actually schools started by early missionaries even long before that. So we don't have a clear uh, official start date. We know the last one officially closed in 1996, but you're talking about well over 150 years of um, a combination of kinds of schools. So residential schools where kids lived, day schools where kids went during the day and and went back home, and then all the different other kinds of institutions where children were kept against their will or their family's wills, like in in, uh, Indian hospitals or sanitariums and things like that. So there was residential schools needs to be understand more broadly and also to understand that all of the impacts of all of these schools and institutions have not been fully remedied or or those impacted compensated you know so we're we're really talking about hundreds of institutions and if you think about the number of children that have been found now in unmarked graves which are in the thousands that's only a small number of the institutions so far if you were to count all of the deaths across all of these institutions, including those that resulted from day schools or Indian hospitals, the number is going to be far higher than people even think. Dr. Coburn, um, was a lot of this, we know that the churches ran these schools, but was a lot of this move because of an attempt to convert Indigenous people to Christianity? Well, yeah, so the beginning of them, as, as Dr. Palmer points out, began, began as sort of a network of Christian missionary, mostly uh, Catholics settling here, part of their sort of, uh, you know, New World crusades of converting the savages to Christianity. And so when it becomes a formalized system of uh, uh, state-adopted uh, educational coerced assimilation project, is... I, you see Sir Johnny McDonald, he sends down uh, an individual by the last name of Davy. A Davy report comes out uh, a few years after Confederation. And he goes down to the United States and sees what's happening there because they have boarding schools. They say, well, what can we do to coercively uh, assimilate these, these, these kids? Well, I'm, well, the next generation anyways, the future of Indigenous peoples. Erase their presence, any kind of lingering cultural trace that they might have had. And they realized we already have an existing network of pretty much predominantly, about 70% of them, I think, were run by the Roman Catholic Church, another 20% by, um, I think, the Anglican, and 10% by the United. So we actually didn't have a formal sort of educational system at that time. Uh, it's emerging around late 19th century, but they do use and avail themselves of these existing missionary uh, or mission schools that are next to, or even often far off in the distance, as they would later be, um, schools for that particular project of colonizing Indigenous kids, and it was um, sent off to these inhumane conditions where the Indian would be beat out of them, and many of them, thousands of them, did not survive it. Um, how did it get to the point... Dr. Martin Hill, of uh, we, we hear these stories about RCMP removing children. How was it always like that? I mean, how did it get to that point? Well, I, I think the policy um, that came in when the RCMP were basically born to um, <laughs> track down Indigenous uh, uh, leaders and uh, it, it made a natural fit to then uh, take our children. And if you did not hand over your children, you yourself would be um, incarcerated. So I think that the, the, the understanding that, you know, this started with, you know, uh, a, 
collusion between uh, the, the government as well as their police forces and the churches. They were working together. Um, they were funding and, and dealing with this issue together as a team. And, and so you can't separate state and church in, in this respect. And of course, that their arm, which is still the arm that uh, abuses and brutalizes Indigenous people, the RCMP, which is why there's such a call for them to be dismantled. Their origins are based in racism. And you can see the statistics today and the brutality that happens with the shooting and killing of Indigenous uh, youth all across this country, um, and they, they refuse to accept responsibility. So that's a real problem that needs to be addressed. It's still uh, being denied by the RCMP, and those records are being withheld um, from the public and from the survivors. And those things need to be addressed. Uh, Pam Palmerter, how, how is it that um, it's taken so long for this to come, I'm, I won't say to come to light, but to come to light in a for a general in the general population, and and are you hopeful that you know we seem to be twigging onto it now? Yeah. So here, here's the problem: this kind of racism and violence against Indigenous peoples have been so normalized that people don't even notice that it's wrong or what's happening or that it is somehow so, you know, obviously counter to the basic principles of human rights and and justice and and freedom and personal safety. So, I mean, Canadians have long known. I mean, if you look at surveys over the last two decades, the majority of Canadians have known that the conditions in in First Nations are not good. They've known to some extent about residential schools. Um, but it is literally taken the the discovery of thousands of unmarked graves of tiny children to really shock Canadians into actually reading the recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or or you know asking the governments to account for these things. And that's because the way indigenous peoples have been treated, has been normalized in every aspect of society. It's just, it's in our education system. If we're taught at all about Indigenous issues, it's very historicized in the past, this kind of myth of pioneers coming here and we all shook hands and peace and friendship treaties and everything was just fine, uh, right up into how we're portrayed in the media oftentimes, especially by police, as being dangerous, as being insurgents. In fact, we had one Minister of Indian Affairs call First Nation leaders threats to national security. And so there's this constant messaging that there's something wrong with us, that we're bad, that that we're holding up uh, things that people want. And so there's been almost like this othering of us, like, well, that if there's any problems in our communities, that's their issue. Instead of really seeing this as a collective problem, and that Canadians themselves are the ones working for police forces. They are the social workers. They are the ones working for government. They are the ones participating in this both historic and ongoing genocide. Why am I hopeful? Um, I'm, I'm actually hopeful because we never give up. Indigenous peoples have never given up. You see survivors of residential schools leading the way on this. You see kids, First Nation kids in foster care, fighting the government in court and winning over and over and over again. So our people bring a lot of hope with them. They have to. They're the survivors. And Canadians, now that they see have started in massive numbers standing beside us and, and calling for action and taking action themselves. So I think the the hope is in the people. We will push for the change that we need. I don't think it's voluntarily going to come from government, or it would have already. I'm going to take a call from Jim in Pickering. Hi, Jim. Oh, hi, Libby. Yeah, it is in our, uh, what a somber day. And it is in our schools, and it's been normalized. It's in our churches as well, and our religion. And, you know, Libby, uh, so I, I just want to know why we're not hearing from these religious organizations that ran the institutions that would be 
maybe the only ones that know how those children got in those graves, what happened, right? Where are their records, right? And I'm not looking for an apology. I'm just looking for the truth, as in truth and reconciliation. I'm wondering, and I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. But Libby, why has there been no representation even come on to your station when you're discussing this to tell their side? Well, they, the Catholic Church uh, in Canada did issue uh, an apology uh, a little while ago. Um, I'm, I'm going to throw that to the panel um, to see what they are expecting. I, I know there's a, a an attempt to get the Pope to come here to talk about this, but yes. I don't want to speak to it, Jim. Um, I'm going to let you go, keep listening, and, and I'll see what the panel has to say. Thank you, Libby. Have a good day. Okay. Uh, panel, uh, Dr. Coburn. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a sort of a nice gesture. It's long overdue, extremely overdue from the Catholic Church. So I guess the um, Canadian Council of Catholic Bishops uh, issued a sort of an apology with setting aside a, a nominal amount of money um, for some sort of reparations. They've made extraordinary amounts of money themselves in terms of not just the revenue that they collect, but... Um, profiting on sales of indigenous properties and, you know, foregoing the liabilities that they've incurred um, in, you know, what they owe to indigenous peoples. But the the, the Pope that continues to be reticent and uh, has said, I can't apologize for them, I, you know, whereas he was around to different places, including South America, for, you know, the massacres that occurred down there in the 1980s, especially in, um, uh, like, Chile's, uh, you know, sort of tyrannical authoritarianism of Pinochet, but, um, and also recently, I think, in, in Ireland, with the discovery of the uh, mother and child houses, where there was also mass graves. So, and, and I think I've spoken to you about this in the past, Libby, about the fact that in these sort of modern liberal democracies, we, you know, not just ignore the fact that this occurred, especially these atrocities, but we, we actively deny them that these are things that occur only in the worst places of the world, the worst times of history, but we're still unearthing mass disposal sites of the corpses of children. Some, certainly, sure, may have been consecrated grounds. I think, you know, there was some discussion at houses that these were might have been properly laid graves and it been, um, you know, basically over, over like, overgrown for a long time, but um, in Kamloops, for certain, it seemed like just a mass dumping site of corpses, which is reminiscent of what we might think from uh, genocidal areas, especially in the 1990s in the Balkans, um, just disposing of bodies into a mass grave. That, uh, that that doesn't occur here, but this is our contemporary reality, because the siblings of those children, they're still alive, and they have been wondering, why did I get dragged away by the RCMP out of the hands of my mother and father, perhaps the family, dragged there? And I went with my sibling, and I never saw them again, and nobody ever knew whatever happened to them. And and this is sort of the heartbreak that trickles down. It's, um, I think, what Pam Palmer alluded to, is that it is an intergenerational cycle, because the children of those children of broken people hope to be broken as well, as they struggle to make their way through society. And part of this, yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to round it back out, it's going back to the churches, is these are just nominal gestures. And Roseanne Archibald, the national chief of the Assembly of First Nations, said, we're not in the business anymore of accepting hollow apologies. So we're looking for action. Dr. Don Martin-Hill, one thing I I just heard that I found very interesting uh, was that apparently the number of Indigenous people in the cities has been uh, largely undercounted and that... This may be corrected when we get the details of, of last year's census. Um, what are the implications of that? Well, I think our population is growing and 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 leaps and bounds. Which, when you're on the brink of extinction, you know, a century earlier is a good thing. Um, the problem is, you know, on reserves, even at Six Nations here, uh, which is an urban. Uh, reserve, there's no place to build a home. Um, we've run out of land, as, as is the case for many reserves. You have no choice but to leave, as I did as a young mom 
because you have to build your own home. And I don't know, Canadians, if you know what it entails and the bureaucracy and the red tape because you're not allowed to have equity because your land is really crown land, but you still buy it, but you don't own it. So all the bureaucracy of trying to just live on a reserve is incredibly difficult. Let's not even get into access to infrastructure. Um, 90% of the homes here at Six Nations uh, do not have uh, access to the water treatment plant pipelines. There's no infrastructure. So when you look at how difficult it is to survive on a reserve, and that is by design. That is by design. That's not a mistake. There, you know, we call it economic apartheid, call it anything you want, but most reserves are really struggling just to get by. And so if you're a young person, you go to university or you want to get a job, you have to leave. And that was the design of, of the assimilation and acculturation policies was to make uh, living on a reserve so difficult um, that, that you would be forced to leave. And, and in some cases, you know, people want to leave. They want to live. And, and we're on our own land. Whether we live on a reserve because we do have access to be able to build a house, which is a lot of money here at Six Nations, um, you, you still can go. I can go anywhere I want in the world. I'm still a Haudenosaunee person. Many of us have been in cities. My mother had to flee. Uh, I was born during the 60s scoop, as were my, my brothers and sisters. They were knocking on doors. And many Iroquois women fled to what we call border towns in the state. So New York City, Detroit, Buffalo, New York um, have high populations because they had to leave. And, and it's interesting to think you seek refuge in the state, but hmm. in Canada, yeah. that's what they had to do. So I think it's, it's imperative that people understand the oppression that Indigenous people feel and that no matter where we live, in our homeland, on our reserve, or you know, across the country because we're working at a university there, we're still Haudenosaunee. We're still Ungwahoe people. Um, and that, that idea of colonial separation saying, well, you're a Bill C-31 or you're a Treaty 6, those are not nations. You know, we can live anywhere we want. This is Turtle Island. It's our homeland. It's our mother country. We don't exist anywhere else on the planet. This is it for us. And we should be able to live where we want without being, like, counted like cattle. Um is there something happening now where where people are actually discovering that they have indigenous ancestry? Is 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 that something that's going on now, Dr. Colburn? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm on two different minds of it. Uh, there's a lot of people who know that they're part of uh, indigenous nation, but there are you know a different sex, I guess, or a segment that is uh, scouring their genealogy and their family tree sort of actively looking for a distant ancestor. Uh, it's, a, it's a real, it's a difficult and long conversation that I don't know if we can talk about it here, but in terms of us embracing and in, in us regenerating our national institutions, such as political membership in our communities as citizens, uh, we, we are looking for the people who have been dislocated and want to reconnect. So, um, but that's a big issue of, of, of reconciliation is, you know, rebuilding ourselves and it's uh, doing so with the political autonomy without the interference of, uh, you know, almost a genocidal state, basically. The state that still continues to kill off our people and, um, and allow us to be racially disadvantaged. Um, as the sort of disappointing news that we hear, despite our triumphs in court, the uh, federal government continues to press on and uh, litigating to uh, deny us an equitable future. Um, I have another question for for Dr. Palmiter, and that's, um, are we, um, do we have an erroneous tendency to look at Indigenous people as kind of monolithic. I mean, I would, you have different nations and, um, uh, I'm sure there are big differences. So are we kind of looking at, uh, the community the wrong way? Oh, yes. And that's entirely again by design. I mean, um, colonial officials came here and the, the relationships that they had, uh, were with sovereign, independent nations. 
And, you know, there's about 50 to 60 sovereign nations here in what's now known as Canada, obviously more in the, in, in the United States. And in fact, just the act of treaty making is an acknowledgement under European law and international law that they were entering into agreements with sovereign, independent nations with their own governments and their own laws. And there's never been a law or an act that's ever eradicated that or erased that. So our sovereignty and our independence is still very much alive. Um, and But that's never been taught to Canadians. That's never been, we've never been treated like that. Colonial officials came here and treated us as we're one this fictional race of Indians. We're all just Indians, and the federal government assumed jurisdiction over Indians, and even decides who is an Indian and who isn't. And then that decides whether or not you even get to have a relationship with the federal government under the Indian Act, who's an Indian. But there's, it, it's completely the opposite. Like for us, I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq Nation and Mi'kmaq territory. Uh, and you know, you have people here who are from Anishinaabeg and Haudenosaunee, and our nations are something completely separate from this myth that's been created that they're all, we're just all one Indians. That would be like saying all of the countries of the world are all just one generic thing, and they're not. That's why we have United Nations. Well, it's the same here in Canada, except we haven't been taught that. And the problem is governments, even though they talk a different game about nation-to-nation relationships with all the different nations here, they still fight tooth and nail to protect their right to control who's an Indian and who isn't in this country, and then determine who they will talk to and who they won't, whether it's a, you know, a First Nations small community, or is it the larger nation that you're talking to? And these are things that Canadians have just been sold. They've been sold this bill of goods, and that a one-size-fits-all approach is how we go about reconciliation. But the Haudenosaunee are as different from the Mi'kmaq people as they are the Anishinaabeg, the Cree, or Wet'suwet'en people. We don't all want the same things. We don't all have the same experiences. So part of reconciliation is truly starting to have a relationship on a nation-to-nation basis. Okay, um, I'm I'm afraid that we are basically out of the time. I'm going to go uh, around the panel uh, and just very quickly, what would you like us to take into tomorrow from this day, uh, Dr. Martin Hill? I think um, it, it, a new era is understanding the real history of, of this country and how to transform those relationships. The goal is, you know, justice in all spheres and so i hope canadians this may be what spurs them you know the finding of these children but there are many buried bodies across this country um, that allowed this country to have the resources and riches that it has and we seek justice dr colbert Uh, i would i would say the same thing uh seeking justice is forward looking a new era it's one where we live and coexist in community with one another, acknowledging uh, the sovereign Indigenous nations and their political autonomy. And the fact that uh, newly arrived or even people who have settled here in Canada would like to embrace the, uh, the Indigenous nation of which they live. And um, most of all is to eliminate the injustices that afflict future generations that begin starting today. But with tomorrow, they say to stop it because you're propagating it with uh, Indigenous children, of which we've gotten no signal from this Liberal government based upon their reactions to yesterday's federal court decision that they were going to continue to disadvantage future generations. So send a message to your government to stop the injustice. And Dr. Palmer. Okay, here's the thing that Canadians can do, because it doesn't have to take 500 years to see reconciliation. They can tell governments in the next 100 days, stop fighting kids in court and comply with the human rights tribunals so that our kids don't have to be destroyed in foster care in the future. Stop fighting residential school survivors in court, release all of the documents, compensate them and prosecute the perpetrators. Stop fighting First Nations women in court. Finally, let them be part of their communities compensate them for the injustice, 
and on a longer-term basis, tell governments and church officials that it's time they start talking about land back and real reparations. All right. A lot to think about. Thank you so much, Dr. Pam Palmiter, Dr. Veldon Coburn, and Dr. Don Martin-Hill. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Libby. Thank you. Okay, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, a lot of parents very upset that they have been told not to use rapid tests on their kids now that they are back in school. We're going to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Many parents and grandparents are up in arms over the Ford government's latest directive on the subject of rapid tests. Some have been using the antigen tests to make sure that kids are safe now that they are back in school. And as you'll recall, these tests were distributed by the federal government to various organizations earlier this year to be used in workplaces. And the provincial government now is adamant that that is what their purpose is. The chief medical officer of health is saying the same thing. He's saying it's not useful to use these tests. And he's uh, directed the organizations like Chambers of Commerce, like don't give them to parents anymore. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. I'm joined by Ryan Imgrund, who's an educator in York Region and a biostatistician. He's been providing daily COVID-19 data analysis. And uh, Kate Dupuy, and she is with the Earl Beatty Community Asymptomatic Testing Program. Hi, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's begin with Ryan. Uh, so what is, uh, these tests actually were supposed to be used for um, small businesses. There are a lot of them. So um, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think that not having testing in school is a really, really big problem. I think the one thing which we need to keep in mind is that the Delta variant is here. And there's a fact about the Delta variant, which is very inconvenient for medical officers and public health units to admit. And that's the fact that 74%, so almost three of every four cases, are going to be transmitted when someone has no symptoms. So therefore, our school screenings that we have, they don't work. The only way that we can pick up these cases and we can stop those 75% of cases which are being passed on before people show symptoms is through rapid testing. And uh, um, uh, so how are, how are you starting to do this kind of ad hoc rapid testing on your own, Kate Dupuy? Well, one of the parents at our children's school had reached out to a group called Stay Safe in Waterloo over the summer and connected with them through their ambassador program. And so they had actually driven up to Waterloo from Toronto twice to pick up basically a trunk full of these tests. We had signed up parents, all volunteer basis, to commit to testing each of their children twice a week. So we were recommending Monday mornings and Thursday. And the idea, as Ryan just said, is that what you're trying to do is to catch a child who potentially has COVID before they go into school and to catch children that are asymptomatic. These rapid antigen tests are not the same as the PCR tests that are being given at testing centers and hospitals and are meant for kids who are showing symptoms on those screeners that schools have you do. These are for kids who just seem fine, wake up, no symptoms. You give them a test twice a week, and you can be relatively certain you are not sending a child with COVID into a school building. Uh, Ryan, uh, the chief medical officer of health has said this is unnecessary, uh, that he said that so far... The, the cases in schools are low and not to do this. What, what do you think of his view? Well, it's very, very problematic. In fact, yesterday at his press conference, he specifically said, this was his statement, schools are safe because of daily screening. Well, daily screening is only using symptoms. And as we just said, 
symptomatic cases are only passed on one-fourth of the time. So even if symptomatic screening was fantastic and it worked 100% of the time, you're only going to stop 25% of all cases. That's the first thing. The second thing is that symptomatic screening is extremely problematic. They're worried about false positives with these like antigen tests. That's ridiculous. We need to be worried about false positives with symptomatic screening. Right now, the COVID-19 positivity rate is, is only 2%, which means one out of 50 people who have symptoms of COVID-19 are testing positive for COVID-19 because it's usually something else. So we are relying on a really, really crappy screening tool that doesn't work, that has a lot of false positives, and we don't want to use one that is going to capture three times as many cases and has fewer false positives. It just simply doesn't add up. And that statement that schools are safe because of daily screening is irresponsible and it's wrong. Uh, Just to bring us up to speed, what exactly is the screening in schools? Yeah, so the screening is not very good first off. There are some schools who still have active screening. And what that active screening may be, a student has to fill in a questionnaire at home, has to email something in, has to show a QR code. Um, That's the more active screening. And most school boards now are not doing active screening. What they're doing is actually sometimes like passive screening or really just saying, look, if you're in the school next week, we'll just assume that you've passed the screening. So the screening that they're doing is pretty much non-existent. There's nobody attesting to the fact that their child does not have symptoms. If they're there, that's just simply saying they're there because they don't have symptoms. It's a really, really bad screening program, and the tool itself is just not good. Uh, Kate Dupuy, are there jurisdictions elsewhere, like in the States, where uh, this rapid screening has been really useful? Well, it's really interesting because listening to our Chief Medical Officer of Health yesterday, Dr. Moore, really suggests that these tests are not useful for kids in schools. We don't even have to look to other countries. We can look right here in Canada. Just this week, Nova Scotia and Quebec both announced that they will be implementing systematic rapid antigen testing of students in their schools. So it seems a little strange to me that our Chief Medical Officer of Health is saying, absolutely not, we're not doing this here in Ontario, but then two other Chief Medical Officers of Health in Canada are saying, yes, let's do it, let's try. I mean, my perspective through this whole thing, I'm a parent, I'm a working mom of two, has always been let's do whatever we can, try to spend whatever we need to, to keep our kids safe. Our kids are the most important people. We want our kids to be safe. We want our families to be safe. You know what? Thanksgiving is coming up. Wouldn't it be wonderful? We've been having conversations with my in-laws. Are we going to be able to get together? The kids are in school and daycare. Is it safe? Why doesn't every family in Ontario that has kids, why don't we all have a box of these tests at our house? We could do a rapid antigen screen. We could know that we can go over to No-No's house hug him on Thanksgiving, and we would just feel peace of mind. This is being done in other provinces. It's being done in England. It's being done in Germany. We're always sort of behind here in Ontario and trying to catch up. And we're just hoping the government will look to see what peers are doing both here in Canada and around the world and say, you know what, let's at least try this. Let's try and roll it out. We know parents across the province have been doing it. Let's work with those parent groups. Our our group is very happy to have a conversation with the Chief Medical Officer of Health Minister Lecce, Minister Elliott, and say, look, this is how we did it. Can you use all your billions of COVID relief funds that the federal government gave us and we still haven't used? Can we use those money to to scale this up and try and make all kids and all families across Ontario as safe as we can be? Uh, Ryan, um, first of all, no surprise that various chief medical officers of health don't agree. That's no surprise there. Uh, but, uh, you know, on social media, I was reading from a lot of people saying, oh, they've they've lost confidence in Kieran Moore, Dr. Kieran Moore, the chief medical officer of health, and also an issue they're saying, well, the federal government has paid for these tests, so why is the provincial government being so picky about where they're being used? You're right. So I think, first off, I think that's a really, really good point. Why is the like provincial government getting involved with the federal government spending this money on these tests? But let's just say that they want it, that they're saying that because they want to be the ones that actually like, provide these tests. Well, very, very quick napkin math. We've got 36 weeks left in the school year. 
we have 1.8 million students that are attending in-school classes right now. If we tested them two times per week, if there were no cases in the school, and we upped it to three times per week if there were cases in the school, it would work out to, and it's an interesting figure, about $400 per child in school. Now, $400 per child. Where have we heard this figure before? That's the money which Minister Lecce gave out to families with no strings attached in April. It was $400 per family. So they're fine with giving $400 to families literally for fun, for absolutely no reason. But when it comes down to spending that same $400 to keep schools safe and to keep kids in school, they refuse to do it. I don't understand it. Okay. Um, we are uh, running out of time. Kate Dupuy, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I would just like to say thank you because so many parents have stepped up and have worked so hard collaboratively together to try and roll these programs out at their schools. It's really crushing that this was stopped by the provincial government. And I really do hope that our our premier will work with families, with school communities, with advocates and educators to to institute rapid antigen testing in schools as fast as we can so that we can keep schools open safely. And Ryan? Yeah, we're at the finish line right now. We're at the point, I think it's an actual tipping point, and the fact that this is being brought up in various uh, media sources right now, we're almost at the finish line. And in order to get to the finish line and to have rapid antigen tests in schools, we need to fight. We need to reach out to our trustees. We need to reach out to our public health unit. We need to reach out to our MPPs and MPs and say, we need this in Ontario now. That's the only way we'll be able to go over the finish line and ensure that these rapid antigen tests are inside of schools. And if you're someone who is listening right now, reach out to your local politician, reach out to your school board trustee and say, we want rapid antigen tests inside of our schools. Okay. Thank you so much, Ryan Imgrund and Kate Dupuy. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for having us. Bye. Bye. Uh, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your grocery bills. Have they gone up? Have they gone up a lot? And uh, what are you doing about it? We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you been paying more for food lately? And have you adjusted your grocery shopping to save some of that extra money? According to a new report by the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, food inflation is at 5%. Accordingly, 86% of those who participated in the survey feel that food costs are higher than they were six months ago, and Zoomers feel this more strongly than the millennial and Gen Z demographics. Uh, Could that be because the younger demographic uses more prepared and delivery food? Bottom line is, uh, is this affecting the health of our diets? Uh, The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I do want to know if you have felt that you had to adjust what you buy because of that. Right now, let's go to Janet Music, Research Program Coordinator at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Hi, Janet. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, You're very welcome. So, um... You know, uh, I've got to say that when I go shopping, uh, it feels like it's more than 5%, to be perfectly honest. It can be. 5% is an average, and it really depends on the products you're buying. So there have been reports of some cuts of meat, for example, at the meat counter have gone up 30%. So it really depends on the product you're buying and where you're located. You know, in the stores that you're going, are you comparison shopping? Are you using coupons? So there's a lot of things that go into price, but I'm not surprised that you feel like it's more than 5%. And and certain things like uh, bread? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the COVID pandemic has really had a strange effect on a lot of aspects of our lives. I'm sure everybody is starting to get tired of it, but 
and not only COVID, but also kind of these adverse weather effects. So in the prairies, for example, they've been having drought conditions and wildfires in California have been affecting, you know, growing seasons and products. So you will see it in, in bakery items and you'll see it in the center of the store, you know, where we get our spices and our cookies and our sauces. So it's not just at the meat counter. It's all across the board for sure. And well, there's also the issue of labor costs. Uh, we've had sporadic raises for people working in grocery stores, even though we all acknowledge that they are essential workers and, and, uh, you know, they're, it's, it's dangerous what they do or it can be. Um, so, uh, and we're hearing about labor shortages basically all the way through the economy. So how much of this is the fact that, that uh, you have to pay people more now? Yeah, it's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, certainly when when grocery stores implemented the so-called hero pay for for staff who, you know, while the rest of us were comfortable working at home and they had to go to work, that would have affected, you know, re- retailers' bottom line. But, you know, they were kind of quick to take that hero pay away. Yep. And I think what people don't realize is that it, sometimes it's the packaging, not the food product itself. So we've got plenty of cookies, but we just can't get the packaging or the plastic we need from our global trade partners for, you know, many reasons, COVID-19, upsetting shipping or, you know, weather effects, et cetera. But labor is definitely an issue. But where that happens in the supply chain, it's, it's difficult to say how that plays out in your lo- in your piece of toast in the morning, for example. Let's take a call from Jerry in Richmond. Richmond Hill, I would think. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Go ahead, Hi, Jerry. Hi. Hi, Libby. I just want to comment. I, I love to bargain shop. And yesterday I rushed out and did two different stores, and I love my Crisco oil for making my popcorn, whatever. I don't like the olive oil. So I always, when I watch, it's always about 4 or $5, and I watch when it's on sale. So a couple months ago, I bought three of them, of three ninety seven, happier than pig and poo. Yesterday, without even thinking, I just grabbed the bottle, brought it home, looked at the price, and it's going back. It's seven ninety seven. Well, yeah, well, you'll you'll have to pay seven ninety seven until it goes on sale again. <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm rationing it. <laughs> okay, well, but but I was told that all the oils are going up uh, a while back, and so I don't know. Is that because of the packaging and it coming in from wherever, Janet? Yeah, absolutely. It could absolutely be the packaging, and there's also a bit higher demand. So you, I know you you said you were making popcorn, which is. <laughs> Amazing to me because I make it in the microwave. But, um, you know, when we were all forced to work from home, many of us started cooking again in the kitchen. And so the demand for these products went up in a way that wasn't the case before the pandemic. So it, it could be packaging, but it also could be they can they can charge that price because your neighbor is also wanting to use that oil for their popcorn as well. <laughs> I'm not going to tell them to use that oil for their popcorn. Let me tell you. Okay. But also, too, the the the, the quantities are smaller, but the prices are higher. Yep. That's the what do they call that? Shrinkflation. <laughs> Just don't yeah. do it to the toilet paper, though. <laughs> okay, Jerry. Thanks, thanks for that. Keep safe, ladies. Okay. Uh, that's one thing. I mean, there, there's a good side to this too, uh, to shrinkflation. Uh, so it might, cause we waste a lot of food and some of that is packaging. I know that there are certain things that I buy, even if it's fresh food, it's packaged, uh, and the package is more than I can use. So, uh, shrinkflation, hopefully that means less waste. Uh, and it also might mean for some people less waistline. <laughs> It could, absolutely. And I think, you know, the thing about shrinkflation is that it sneaks up on you, for one. So you might not notice that you're getting less volume of potato chips, for example, for the same amount of price. But also, I think as adults or as consumers, we should be able to make that choice for ourselves, the amount for a price point, right? And so you're right. Maybe we could stand to eat a less processed foods. That's an individual like decision for people to make. And so the thing about shrinkflation is that it happens over time. And so you're not noticing that, oh, the price of that has gone up. 
because it's not in your face. And so people generally aren't as concerned. But what's interesting is I think a lot of that is happening at once now. And three quarters of Canadians have noticed it. And that is more than before. Let's hear from Bridget in Toronto. Hello, Bridget. Hi. Hi, Libby. Um, a few things, um, I, and I'm going to say I don't necessarily live as I'm about uh, live the way I'm about to uh, preach. But um, uh, in terms of the packaging, you know, the most uh, the some of the things that are packaged these days. It means I think the cost of food going up maybe gives us pause to rethink some of the things that we should be doing differently. I think the strangest thing I've seen packaged lately uh, was some uh, cooked beets. In, in each beet was cooked in, in an individual package. It was a kind of insane. Mm. <laughs> but yes, I think um, there's probably you know one of the things we have to consider is that um, you know people are uh, probably the volume of food that we buy anyway. Maybe we need to make better choices. Well, yeah, yeah. The yeah. the volume of food we waste is staggering. Yeah, I, you know, when I think about, uh, we we have just gotten to the point culturally, I think, where we think we should have every possible food choice in our fridge to 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 reach for at any given time, and and I'm not sure that that's necessary. Okay, Bridget, thanks for that. Um, I think that's an interesting point for sure because we live in a northern territory where things aren't growing all year round, and so. It is packaging waste, and but also, you know, shipping fossil fuel waste as well. And many people don't think about that, mostly because, you know, we, we need food to live. But we're working so hard that we need the convenience because you work all day. You take an hour to get home. Nobody wants to be cooking from scratch, right? Mm, I do. <laughs> it's it's a good way to come down. Uh, so, Janet, before we go, how are people adjusting? Are they, as you say, uh, there's some, you know, discount apps. There's uh, apps where you can get food that's, you know, right on the best before date. What are people doing to mitigate this? Yeah, I think that we're seeing kind of a resurgence in the old old school, I guess, methods of, you know, couponing and looking at paper flyers. But, you know, I think people are now not taking just, you know, on Saturday morning going and getting a big load of groceries. I think people now are, are, are bargain shopping or they're price comparing over different stores and different brands, right? And, and I think it was Jerry from Richmond Hill who said that she's stockpiling. I don't necessarily think that that is necessary, but you know, people are trying to take advantage more of these kind of digital um, opportunities to see price reduction, but also in-store and taking the time to go to different places to find the best price. Okay. Janet Music, thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. Right. So uh, we're at the end of the show. People remember Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If we could not get to your calls. I'm anxious to hear what you had to say about our first National Truth and Reconciliation Day. And also there's more to talk about with this food thing. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.